Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Today on the podcast, we have a really special pairing. We got Daisy Johnson in. Uh, Daisy Johnson is the author of Everything Under and is also a previous guest on the Vintage Podcast. Um, Her book was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize last year and she is interviewing Jeanette Winterson, who has just been longlisted for the Man Booker Prize for her book, Frankenstein. Frankenstein is set in Brexit Britain. It follows a young transgender doctor called Rye who is falling in love against their better judgment with Victor Stein, a celebrated professor leading the public debate around AI. It also touches on the story of Mary Shelley, the 19-year-old who wrote Frankenstein, and asks the question, what will happen when homo sapiens are no longer the smartest beings on the planet? Um, I'm really excited for you to hear this chat between the two of them. They're both incredibly sharp and intelligent and interesting. Um, So I think it's a really lovely conversation. Here it is for you to enjoy. My name is Daisy Johnson. I'm the author of Everything Under and Fan, and I'm here with Jeanette Winterson to talk about her new book, Frankenstein. I wondered if we could start to talk a little about uh, the journey of the book and how it came to you and... um, the initial idea that sparked the work, if that's an interesting question. Yeah, it, it began in the most commonplace way because we were at the um, the double centenary of the publication of Frankenstein right. and I wanted to read it again, of course, because I hadn't read it since I was 21. And at the same time, and completely separately for my own purposes, I've been following developments in artificial intelligence, mm. robotics. I like to know what's going on in the world, you know, so I follow the money. And I, th- I, I thought, this is, we're all faffing about with Brexit and, and worrying about Facebook and Google. And I thought that this, this huge disruption is coming our way and nobody's looking at it really mm. and all of a sudden the rapture of the geeks will happen and what 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 about the rest of us so i've been following it very closely and then I, I suddenly realised I could put the two things together and I thought, look, I can take people back into the story of that fateful holiday on Lake Geneva mm. when the young Mary Shelley, not even 19, came up with the idea for the world's most famous monster. I wanted to talk about what it was like, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution um, and also the question that really all... all all big thinkers were, were talking about at that time, whether you're a poet, a philosopher, um, a scientist, a doctor, whence proceeds the principle of life? Mm. That was really exciting them. You know, because we have to remember that in, in, in London in the early 1800s, society was much smaller, London was much smaller. And kind of everybody knew everybody who was interesting and they all wanted to talk about things. So they weren't in specialised subject groups. Um, you were expected to be able to talk about electricity, which was just happening. You were expected to be able to talk about what was going on in the factories up in Manchester, politics, the French Revolution. Mm. Everybody was still terrified there's going to be a revolution in England. I wanted to bring all that in for the modern reader, not swamp them with it, yeah. not do a historical novel. Look, you know this because you know, you've know you done it yourself with just taking a story when, when you took the Oedipus story and thinking, all right, um, this is really fresh, this is really relevant. What should we do with it for now? Yeah. So it was that. Yeah. Um, and I've heard you talk about writing your other books as a sort of... Um I guess, a kind of collecting of different things, um, of, you know, going to charity shops and rummaging and um, in a kind of holistic way, finding all these things that fitted together. Yeah. Is that what happened with this book? I never know where it's going. Right. Um, I, I mean, 
I, I, I knew there was a good idea there and yeah. I did start with the beginning, which is unusual for me, which was the fateful holiday on Lake Geneva because mm. I wanted to get Mary Shelley's voice and I wanted to see if I could run the conversations that they would have had together so that it seemed spontaneous, lively, that we were really in there yeah. in that room with them, that, that damp, rainy fortnight on the lake. Um, so once I'd done that, then the next challenge was to get the voices for the modern day and I just thought, all right, these characters who were who were sitting there in the Villa Diodati on the lake, why don't I just move them forward in time without any explanation? Mm. And that's why Lord Byron becomes Ron Lord, the manufacturer right. of sex bots. <laughs> Mary Shelley becomes Rye Shelley, the young trans doctor. Yeah, you know, Rye being short for Mary. Um, and I seem and, and Frankenstein become Victor Frankenstein becomes Victor Stein as uh, on the board as machine learning and. Uh, uh, so I'm a spokesperson for AI and I thought don't explain yourself there's mm. no need um, audiences can do all of that readers yeah. can do that just let's just move it and then see what happens mm. so it was really um, letting just then letting the story work its own way through with yeah. guidance from me which is often what I feel is the writing process that you're not I don't know if you feel this but that you're not once, once, you've, once you've got your ideas mm. at that point the secret is not to be too rigid but to let them break out and then see what happens. Yeah. And if it's all going wrong, then you have to call them back, um, like we with children, <laughs> uh, and then hope that the whole thing will come together. Yeah. Um, I, I wondered about the, the characters that mirror each other, and it, it seems, mm. you know, reading it, particularly the kind of second and third time, it kind of does seem like this kind of hall of mirrors um, and or a detective story, and there are breadcrumbs that you pick up as a reader, and, mm. you know, going over a second time, I'd see a breadcrumb that I hadn't seen before. How do you decide how much to hold the reader's hand? You know, how how many clues do you leave them? Other clues that you then took out in later edits? Ah, oh, you must be interested in breadcrumbs because you've got your Gretel yeah. main character. <laughs> and you said that story must be important to you. Yeah, and I worry a lot, you know, about how much you help the reader. Yeah, and how much you just yeah. throw them in there and let them let them find the bits that you put down. Mm. 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 And I think often there are competing trails, so that. Uh, and it's why we all read books differently because when you when there's a book that you love and you start sitting around with friends and you, very soon you kind of start fighting over it like you've got the real version it becomes a kind of scripture and you're the only person who can interpret it rightly yeah. <laughs> and everybody else starts home saying it's not like that that wasn't what she meant and that's not how it ends how can you be so stupid uh, and we've all had those experiences and, and that's when we realize that um the, the, the strong text the things that we love they, they, they're richer um, because so much is in there, and we mm. do follow our own ways through the maze, um, and that's why books seem to change also as we get older and reread them. Obviously, it's the same book, but it isn't, because we're not. And I love that. I love that kind of internal alchemy. I read an interview with you where you said, um, "Apologies for quoting yourself at you, but <laughs> you cannot keep producing the things that have been successful in the past, or that have been, exp- or that have expressed the human condition in the past." Um, you know, kind of writing now where we are maybe exhausted with this idea of a male canon and um, we are trying to write in a queer way. Ha- mm. How do you think we make it new? How do we write in not a new way, but a way that is different from from those books? Mm. I think, well, every generation needs to find its own voice mm. and its own, own way of experiencing and expressing. And, of course, now with, with multimedia, multi-platforms, there are different ways of doing it. It's not just fiction. You know, yeah. I think all the other platforms are exciting and it makes things possible. Um, and I wouldn't want to see any of that go. And I think, for me, always, it, it, it remains about how do you find a language 
the can talk about the world that you live in mm-hmm. uh, in on the outside and the world that you live in on the inside right. because life has an inside as well as an outside and um, we need somehow to be able to align these things and most uh, mental breakdown is about that failure of alignment mm. um, that the outside and the inside are just so far apart in some ways um, and that's painful and you know we, we, we see that now very clearly you know, especially with young people um, the, the world outside looks, just looks like a place they can't live comfortably and I mean that both practically mm. in terms of rent and opportunity and I mean in the sense of well, where do I fit in all this Yeah. so finding finding a language for that to me seems crucial because you know, and the obvious example is that when you, you know, when you go abroad and you speak a language a bit but not much, so you can order the food and ask directions, but then you get lost when you're listening to a conversation. What happens if that other language, second language, foreign language, is actually your mother tongue, your native language? If you don't have the words mm. to talk about your circumstances beyond the very basics, if you can't manage complexity, right. you know, if you can't handle depth, hold on to difference, play with ideas, um, and that's why, to me, the idea of language education never seemed elitist because you're giving people the tools to manage a very complex outside world and a very complex inside world. Mm. And if we can start finding the words for that, um, then we start freeing ourselves yeah. uh, from it, from its claims upon us, right. and we start to be able to change it. So that's always what I'm looking for. I'm saying, you know, for every generation, it's you know, find the language. And then you can talk about everything. Mm. And even if there's no answer, it's not about answers. It's about being able to frame the question. Yeah. No, in such a way, perhaps, that, that, that detonates the assumptions um, that already exist. So that's what I'm looking for. Right. Um, and there was something, does did seem to me, something quite um, elegiac about the relationships. You know, it is, mm. it is called on the cover a love story. Mm. Um, but there always t- seems to be um, kind of implicit in these love relationships a disappointment, you know, mm. um, uh, by the end, um, Mary Shelley and Shelley, uh, their relationship is kind of tarnished with all the things they've been through. And uh, Victor and Rye, I think at one point, um, Rye says um, something like, you know, I love him, but. Mm. And there's always this kind of this but that this could be a better person. Mm. Is that mm. something you were thinking about? Yeah. How how did I, I, I think I want to ask what do you mean by love in this? But that is quite a big question, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I never know what I mean by love. I'm, all, I'm still trying to find out. Um, and I do stalk it you know, right mm. back from the beginning to try and understand this this mystery. Because also it's changed, it changes culturally. And what you know, Mary Shelley and certainly her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, understood by love um, is different. Mm. Um, and, you know, we think of the romantic poets as they were, Shelley Byron, as being romantic uh, in our sense, which can be a bit Mills and Booney. Mm. But <laughs> they really didn't. And certainly for for Mary Shelley, because she you know she loved Shelley, she adored him. Um, but they also thought that love was there to allow you to do something else. Right. It was meant to allow you to go forward in the world and make a difference. So love was a harbour, um, but it wasn't saying goodbye and thank you. I'm closing the door, mm. and now I'm going to live in my nuclear family, and that's yes. the end of that. <laughs> uh, and Mary Wollstonecraft's really clear about that, you know, in her vindication of mm. the rights of woman, where she just says, you know, women have just been shortchanged and duped to be pretty little things who just want attention and love because that's all they'll ever get. Um, and what is the point? What about going out and doing something in the world, girls? Yeah. Um, and it's obviously she's the first feminist, but it's also saying, well, what is love for? You know, we see it as an end and an end in itself. I will find love, you know, Mr. Right, Mrs. Right. And then supposedly it's all meant to work out. Mm. Um, they saw it as a, as a beginning. 
uh, as something that then you could use um, to go forward in the world. So I want to look at that a little bit, but also the fact that, of course, we're always endlessly disappointed in love because <laughs> it cannot work in the way that it's presently constructed and set up. Yeah. Nobody knows why anybody's monogamous because we're not religious anymore. But if you're not monogamous, everybody goes mental. Um, so there's all sorts of things that we are and do which we can't or won't examine. Uh, around the nature of love and it, I wanted to put some of those questions in there in those conversations between Victor Stein and Rye Shelley um, and the fact that they do love but it, they, they both know that it's, it's, it's absolutely going to fail yeah. but that does not mean it's not worth doing and you know there's a bit where Victor Stein says you know love is not a pristine planet mm. um, before human beings and contamination he says that love is a disturbance among the disturbed right <laughs> and that was the best way i could think of to put it yeah at the moment beautiful. yeah <laughs> there'll be another one <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and they i think rye and victor also seem to wonder about um and they disagree on this i think whether you can love someone without the body Mm. Um, and for Rai the bodies but seems very very important mm. um, and for Victor he believes that we should upload our brains and be free of the body and find a different kind of pleasure um, would you upload your brain if someone came into the room now and said this is an option for you is that something that you would do yes I would and I think it would be absolutely terrifying mm. because we only know what it's like to live in a body um, I mean, you know, all religions have as their final goal the fact that we won't live in a body, and you know, this world is not my home, and that this is a, this is a prison, um, or just a, a, a momentary habitation, and that the soul is the thing that will fly off. Um, we, you know, we we like that story, but actually, if it were true, it would be terrifying. You would have no idea. I mean, if I was suddenly in that laptop over there, mm. and I knew I was, I mean. Yes, I could find an avatar and reappear in some other form, um, and that that's kind of exciting and interesting, and that's something that's gone across all hi history and culture, the idea of shape-shifting, taking on different forms. You know, I'm very interested in the fact that we're at a point technologically now which is likely to make possible... Um, all of the, the, the dreams and the myths and the stories mm. that we've told ourselves for millennia. You know, just as we always looked at birds and thought one day we'll fly, so we invented aeroplanes. Now, this question of could we take on another shape, another form? Uh, could we uh, escape mortality? Probably yes. Mm. And I'm very excited by this cusp that we're on now because it's almost as though we've been telling the story backwards when I read it. I think we always knew this. It's almost like it's just taken so long to get here. Yeah. So everything that we think of either as a religious dream or a myth um, or a fairy tale now seems to be finding a sense in what is actually likely to be real. Um, that's odd. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I, of course I have to I have to play with it and explore it. But yeah, I mean, you know, the question of could we love without a body... Um, I don't know, but I do know because I was researching the, the awful bloody sex bots again this morning, <laughs> which now have blinking eyes. They've just had oh an upgrade. God. Yeah, um, people, you know, the people who are making those things are really talking about. They're not just talking about sex, and I don't think that's just to disguise the kind of pornographic, disgusting nature of what they do. I think they mean it when they say this will be a world of relationships. So in effect, you will be having a relationship not with a human body, with something that simply resembles it. And probably we will. Um, there's a really interesting scene kind of halfway through. The, some of the threads start to become tangled and Mary Shelley mm. finds herself meeting a character that she has created. Um, 
I wondered if you ever imagine yourself in the room with your characters, um, which character it is and what you would say to them, what they would say to you. <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted to write that stuff in Bedlam because I thought mm. there'd be definitely... It was partly because I'd, I'd, I'd kind of moved sideways into a, 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 another great Gothic novel, which is <laughs> Dracula. Mm. And I was thinking about Renfrew in the mental home, you know, who's right. sort of psychologically in touch with, with, the, with the vampire. And... Uh, men, uh, I worked in a mental hospital for a year, a very old-fashioned Victorian one, which is now long since gone. And I've always been fascinated by them, the idea of madness and the, the, the lines between madness and what we know to be real or not. And I thought, well, what if somebody absolutely believes that they are this character and mm-hmm. then appears to prove that they are in any case? Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to play with that just to set up a kind of spookiness for the reader, but also to discomfort the reader a little bit. Uh, into what is real and what's not because of course in a fiction nothing's real but everything is yeah and with my characters I I you know I just imagine they're always out there you know it's problematic for me because in 1987 I wrote a book called The Passion um which has a character in it called Villanelle who of course I can never use now yeah Yeah. (laughs) I think Luke Jennings must have nicked it yeah (laughs) he really must and then for 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 codename Villanelle because it's so unlikely that that came separately Yes. Um, so sometimes you lose characters like that. Right. And I just thought, what will I do <laughs> if you know this ever has another life? I'll have to change her name. Yeah. Um, so there's times like that. And then there are also times, I suppose, with the characters when I've talked to them enough and they've talked to me enough and I feel that we can go now. Partly because I don't think the books are actually end stops any more than the characters are end stops. I feel that the thing just gets cut off the way you cut off if you're making a carpet on a loom Mm. and all the threads are there. And I've just decided to stop because if it gets any bigger, it won't fit in anybody's house. Yes, right. You have to stop. Uh, Yeah, I've got to stop somewhere. Yes. And then the thing will pick up later and it might not be the next book. It might be the one after that. Mm. So... You know, it's a bit like those speed cameras on the motorway. You can't tell which pairs are linked. And it's only when you look back later, you think, oh, so that one was really connected to one three times down the line. Right. <laughs> yeah. But this idea that repeats um, throughout and picks up particularly in the middle, um, am I the teller or the tale, mm. did frighten me, I think, um, both as a reader and a writer, um, and kind of made me, I think, consider the position of the writer in the world Mm. um, as this teller but also sometimes at times forgetting um, that you are also a tale Mm. what do you consider that you're the position of the writer you as a writer in the world Um, it's 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 my job to change people's minds and that doesn't mean in in a direct way um, politically or their worldview though that Mm. could follow Um, but really to Change the change their engagement with the world right. or the way they see it, perceive it. Um, I want to to make it a bit wider, and I think that's what reading does. It does it for me, mm. so I want to do it for other people. Um, not only that they can understand someone else's circumstances. Um, it's not that because it doesn't need to be contemporary, but so that they they. I, it's it's this widening of the mind because I think our world is narrowing, and I'm frightened of that. Mm. I think it's why it's so easy now for people to become bigoted um they are becoming narrow-minded and i i do think that an enge- engagement with literature of all kinds uh, can prevent that happening yeah so that's what i want and the idea of being i don't know i mean the, the teller or the tale i like because um i'm not somebody who feels distant from my books i think the best of me is in my books and they I do merge with them in some way. And I don't know if this is true for all writers, but it's true for me. And it's also why I use the first person. 
I don't right. really know how to use the third person because right. I do technically. But I don't wish to, because for me, I must always find the I um, in there and where I am in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there will be uh, other characters who will uh, be a counterpoint to that. But for me, the the, the I is real. Um, And so I am identified with what I do. Yeah, I think this is what you're talking about a little bit. So Joan Didion said that um, writing was a hostile act and this kind of act of trying to make people see things the way we see it Mm. do you see it that way no i don't think it's hostile Mm. and also it's not for me anyway it's not about um trying to get people to see it the way i see it because the way my characters see things or the way the story starts to see things is often a bit of a surprise to me as well um (laughs) it's i mean obviously i have tried i mean you you know you've got a trans character in your book i wanted to 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 make ryan Mm. to a trans doctor there are ways where you do want to widen the conversation anyway and bring in people who are not otherwise represented in fiction um that's important it's important for me in the beginning with gay characters Mm. just to to do that um not for sort of flag waving gay and trans rights but just to say you know the world is rich and strange and diverse yeah um so let's live in it yeah so that's important. But I think it's not about... No, I don't think it's an imposition. I, but I, I think it's an invitation. For me, that's what it would be. Yeah. I also wanted to talk a little before my final question about... Um, so there's bodies all through the book. Um, and one of the bodies that kind of repeats and that is kind of talked about a lot, particularly in the earlier sections, is the pregnant body mm. you know and uh, mary and byron have some you know very irritating arguments about it byron's yeah. very annoying <laughs> he is oh he is <laughs> he's a great character but <laughs> yeah so annoying no you annoyed me don't worry. yeah good <laughs> um yeah what are you what are you doing here with the pregnant body mm. i wanted well there were two things i wanted to do i wanted to show what it was like you know particularly for young women then mm-hmm. um that you would have uh, you would lose multiple children yeah um that you would be lucky if you ended with one child you know, as, as mary shelley did um that even in the most uh, supposedly egalitarian households that all the burden would fall on the woman which it does between Shelley and Mary. Mm. He's the one who runs off and does his own thing. She's left with yes. with the, the grief, the pain, the problems. Um, and I think that's still the case. And I was sort of horrified to think often how little has changed that even now, in it, when it's we think we're in a very different landscape, that for, for women, um, pregnancy being, in every sense, a life-changing moment is also something which is managed by the woman mm. and then everything that happens afterwards too so i thought god we haven't really moved very far from that um but also the pregnant body is something which you know woman's body is something to be celebrated you know where life actually is um and one of the things that does worry me you know about the creation of non-biological life forms um is is i'm worried about what the position of women will be in the future but i'm also worried that there is um a deeply misogynistic element in all of this which simply wants to take away that thing of which is sort of envied and feared Mm. by many men that women's bodies can do this right um and it it is an issue and i think you know there's going to be it's going to be couched in terms of freedom and you know women won't have to do this anymore it's all right Mm. Uh, it already is in some ways um but Really, you have to think, well, is is biological human on this planet simply a stage in the evolution of what it is to be us, consciousness? Or is it something that we should actually celebrate and revere? Right. Um, 
and I don't know the answer to that. No. I honestly don't know if this is a moment, if this is a, a, a giant evolutionary moment for humankind that we will become released from our biological limitations, mm. or whether it's the biggest fuck up we've ever thought of. Yes, <laughs> time will tell. <laughs> um, I wanted to end on this question. Um, Another of the conversations that Byron and Mary has, mm. um, Byron says, uh, why is it that we wish to leave some mark behind? And Mary Shelley answers, it is hope. Um, do you believe this? You kind of talked a little about writing because you want to change people's mind. But what do you think this imperative feeling is that writers have to leave something behind? Why do you think that is? Mm. I think it's so. I don't think it's vanity and I don't think it's redundant. And one of the strange things about reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein again is that I suddenly realised that you know, books find their moment, and it did feel as though it was it was a message in a bottle or a flare sent across time. She couldn't know that it would land here, and that we would. I wish she did. I know <laughs> it's well, maybe somewhere, maybe she yeah. is. But I just thought, how extraordinary that you know, she what her vision should come to us now when we're about to create a new life form. You know, not out of the discarded body parts of the graveyard, but out of the zeros and ones of code. Mm. So she did leave her mark, um, and the point is, it's not—it's not just the world's most famous monster. It's not historical curiosity. It's not an early novel um, by a woman. It's something now which has absolute resonance because it was waiting to find us, and we were waiting to find it. So the two hundred years doesn't matter at all. And there's something really wonderful about that. Um, I guess that's that's the hope part, and that's also the part that says, look, you cannot know what you do now and where it will land. Yeah. And it may be that a long time has to pass before a new generation with a, what looks like in a completely different set of circumstances appear and actually is a complete fit for something that was written 200 years ago. Mm, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And the way that they land, you know, I think, I think a lot of people read Frankenstein when they were teenagers and then yeah. how was it coming back to it? Oh, do you remember reading it? When yeah, you I was time? I was interested in all the things that I found in it now. You know, reading because of course, you know, for me the most obviously love fails entirely in mm -hmm. Frankenstein. No, nobody's love story works out in Mary Shelley's novel. Um, most bitterly of all, the monster for his creator. You know, he's not loved. He's abandoned by Victor Frankenstein, and, and it, 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 be, it turns into the, the, the hateful story that we know. But, you know, the monster's not educated either. And I think this came straight out of Mary Shelley's own experience as a woman of not being educated um, and, and the dangers thereof. You know, just like the monster, Mary Shelley had to educate herself, mm -hmm. just as her own mother did, by reading books. Um, and there's something both poignant and tragic there that Victor, who is a terrible father, he doesn't, you know, doesn't name his child, doesn't love his child, doesn't educate his child. And I think the political message there is massive. And it was only reading it the second time that I thought, wow. Yeah. You know, she was she was she was really hammering something home here. Yeah. You know, because one of the lovely things about that early 18th century, you know, almost uh, the, the revolt against the sort of the, the scientism of the Enlightenment was to say, well, where's the feeling gone? And she's really trying to put that back in and saying, if you don't have the heart as well as the head, um, what happens is a, is, is a gruesome catastrophe. Yeah. But at the same time, she has Victor Stein saying, even in his last minutes, I hope someone else will carry on with my work. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's not one message. And that's what I love about her book. You know, the, uh, reading it again, I realised that, um, how multi-layered it is. And, of course, it has just been reduced to the monster with the big boots and the bulk through his neck yes. <laughs> in the popular imagination. But, in fact, it's massive, mm. and it's for now. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for being here. Um, I love this book. I think everyone else will. It's been really a pleasure to discuss oh, it. Yeah. Well, well, thank you, Daisy. I've really enjoyed our talk. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. Do let us know if you pick up Jeanette's Frankenstein uh, and also Daisy Johnson's Everything Under, both incredible reads for your summer. We're continuing to read lots of women this summer with our Vintage Experts campaign all around encouraging people to read non-fiction books by women. So do check out our Twitter and Instagram to find more about that. It's at Vintage Books on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you tell a friend and until next time. Thank you.